We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode two of LSQ. Hi, it's me, your new pal, Jenny LSQ. I'll tell you, I'm not much of a morning person, but I was happy to jump out of bed early on the morning of Friday, September 8th, to go meet up with the Nationals producer, multi-instrumentalist, songwriter, Aaron Dessner, on the same day that those guys released their amazing and beautiful new album, Sleep Well Beast. Since we recorded the conversation you'll hear in this episode of LSQ, That album was nominated for a Grammy Award, a beyond well-deserved nomination in the category Best Alternative Music Album. And it's a conversation where we touch on a variety of subjects, including Aaron's musical upbringing. You know, he's a twin, and his brother Bryce is also in the National. And he tells this story about how, when he and Bryce were just little dudes, they found a drum set, a mysterious drum set, in the furnace room of their house that they discovered belonged to their dad. They didn't even know that their dad had been a professional drummer, you know, before they were born. That's one of my favorite moments in the conversation you're about to hear. We also talk about the making of Sleep Well Beast, how it was recorded at Dessner's new home studio in Hudson, New York, Long Pond Studio. That's the same building you see on the cover of Sleep Well Beast. You get to hear a bit about what Dessner looks for in a side project of which he has so many it would make your head spin. You know, he's one of the people who help organize the Eau Claire Music Festival uh, that Justin Vernon of Bonnie Vare also is responsible for. And Aaron and Bryce just started another new festival event in Denmark called Haven. And he's got a really great and interesting philosophy about the kinds of projects and the kind of artists he wants to work with. You'll hear a bit about that in this interview as well. Um, And after the Aaron Dessner interview, you voted, and so it's Missy Elliott. Uh, a conversation with her from 2003. You'll get an excerpt of that. And, you know, hit me up with your thoughts. You can reach me on Twitter, at JennyLSQ. Thank you so much, Aaron Dessner, for joining me on the uh, LSQ podcast. Thank you for having me. I, I want to acknowledge right off the bat that this is the day that Sleep Well Beast comes out, and so, fuck. <laughs> happy, yeah, that, happy album release day, dude. Thank you. Yeah, it feels, it feels, I'm very hungover, but it feels like a good hangover, and we're excited, and, um, but fortunately, everybody's, I feel like we've been doing this long enough that we kind of, we're pretty relaxed, you know, we don't get stressed out about TV or there was we used to get nervous about these things or nervous about what critics would say and not that we don't care but I think it's like we're sort of a little bit like we've just been doing it for a long time now and we kind of just if we feel strongly about something we know it's good and and you know get have the right kind of feeling about it there's a certain confidence so or just content or something we're kind of relaxed right now so we're sort of we're drinking too much, and but in a good way right now. <laughs> <laughs> and then it turns. Yeah. Um, fa- fast forward to 15 months from now, somewhere in Europe. Ah! <laughs> um, um, we're not playing an encore in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually happened. 
But what was what was the album by The National that felt like the most significant moment of release for you? I mean, this album, Sleep Well Beast, definitely feels like it was a different process. And it was, um, I hear more of everyone in it. Like, I, hear, I feel like it's more of a, there's more of a synthesis of everyone's like fully like functioning on all cylinders or something there's kind of like we put a lot more it's less of a compromise i guess but but when i mean even when the first record came out in in 2001 and i remember brandon stosse who lived in buffalo at the time he booked us to play in an art gallery up there and it was our first show i think outside of new york um it was and we went we drove up there and he wrote for the local paper and it was the first time anyone wrote about us also and he was already like an eloquent writer and that was definitely we all looked at each other like holy shit we're like in the paper and it was just I think it was the Buffalo art voice or something but um, and weirdly like those every time somebody takes time and listens to something you've made and reflects about it um, or you know your fans tell you like when the the record comes out that's what we're mostly thinking about is like just oh we're we're excited that our fans have this on headphones and are like you know um listening to it and there's just it's a it becomes this more communal thing where the, the music takes on a, a larger meaning or something than just our little corner where we're like obsessing over details and stuff so um but yeah each one this one i mean i could go on forever about it but it definitely feels like a new chapter for the band in a good way you know it's like we feel a lot of freedom with it and and we feel that when we play it also it's like there's a lot more space and it's kind of a different feeling playing these songs and what do you attribute that to i mean my brother and i we talked a lot about wanting to change the process and experiment more and sort of find a way to push the music and i think matt everyone kind of has their own like it was it's always been hard to blend our five these five guys and their like record collections into one thing or, or creative interests. Um, but I think that there was like kind of a collective decision to sort of throw out the playbook a little bit. Mm. And it was partly me. Like I, I, for years I'd made, you know, we'd made records in Brooklyn first in my sister's attic and then in my attic. And then we built a studio in our garage. And so I violate in trouble finally made that way. But all, you know, we would work with like Peter Cadis or different people that helped us with mixing and, um, and some production. But like, basically we were just doing these records in very small confined spaces. And, um, and I've always been sort of the workhorse engine and originate a lot of the music, um, you know, to begin with. And we would, rarely if ever get together in a room and play because I mean at least since alligator the last time we actually did that was alligator um because we didn't have a place to do it and the garage wasn't big enough and so we would build the songs like uh, like an architect like we were you know designing a house or something we like you know lay the foundation and then there'd be a demo and then people would play to it but separately and we would layer it and we would kind of like construct these you know and we would detail these compositions and it was elaborate how we did it, but it wasn't like that didn't leave a lot of room for spontaneity or for risks or sort of like accidents to happen. And I think that was the biggest change is like this record was not made like that at all. It's, it was a lot more playing in a room because we built a, I built a studio up in upstate New York on this farm where I moved to and it's big enough. It's like designed for the band and it's a perfect situation for us to collaborate. Um, but there's a lot of open more experimental space and also more sort of just interaction in the music I guess it it almost feels there are parts of it to me obviously you recognize Matt's voice and when Brian hits the drums he sounds like Brian um, and like the, the harmony in it is recognizably like us I guess but there's a lot about it that was quite different in, how, in terms of how it was made and it's more reckless and there's a lot more sort of experimentation that went on that mm-hmm. we preserved and we didn't clean it up and um, and we made instead of making 20 songs and choosing 10 we made like 50 and chose 12 um, and so there's all these other songs also Damn. so that are actually pretty far along, if not some of them are basically Yeah, I remember as we were talking on email or something, and I was being a nudge and checking in, how's it going with the record? Which I guess would have been just like at the beginning of this year or something, and I remember you saying that you had maybe twice as much, you know, at least as, as, and that you were even thinking, like, could, is there a double album? Is that a, is that a thing? I mean, to be honest, there is still discussion of like, 
following this up with something because and because the the the, the a lot of my favorite music or everyone's favorite music is not on this record actually um, because it wasn't not that we don't love this record but I think there's a bunch of stuff that we did that was more sort of timeless like the first time we've ever recorded in a room and it sounds done just what we played in the room and I don't know why it was like a certain batch of ideas where we just they're basically rock songs but but it was exciting and refreshing to also play a bunch of stuff that was just like the band in a room and it actually because usually that sounds pedestrian when we do it or just sort of like bar band or something but Mm -hmm. a bunch of this stuff felt really like evergreen and kind of there was this this wind blowing through Mm it Um, and we had a word for it we were a phrase we called it razor lemon (laughs) because Mm, it was like high violet was loose wool and this was razor lemon because it's it's like a bright I was going to ask you about loose wool yeah, loose will is like woofy, the thick like woof of terrible love, and this razor lemon is this kind of like bright, and it's like you know Lenny Kravitz's Stratocaster or something. No, I'm I'm just. But you're saying that there's a that there is a, an abundance of songs like that, the razor lemon vibe that are in this group of songs we haven't heard yet. Yes. And so, what was the guiding principle uh, in choosing what songs would make this? would make Sleep Well Beast. I think, I mean, to be honest, a lot of it has to do with Matt and his lyric mm-hmm. world because he's obviously writing. It's funny because we make the music, we make it almost completely before he sings to it. Sometimes he'll mumble melodies to the music, but a lot of times we have to kind of imagine a song and um, and we know that he has ideas, but like he, sometimes he doesn't even sing the songs until the month of mixing even you know so um so this whole other batch of stuff some of them he was singing to and some of them have finished lyrics but a lot of them are more like just before that stage Mm. and the ones it was literally like the that stuff that i was describing the sort of more uh, minimalist approach is that stuff came first and then i think i just got bored and started experimenting and doing other things and sending those ideas and bryce and i did a bunch of stuff and then Matt, he probably literally, it was because he opened a folder of ideas and then he just, the, the more recent ones that he had received, he work, worked on those yeah, first, first, you know. Um, so it may come down to that. But I also think this this group of songs just emerged as like a cohesive thing. And, and they, obviously it's diverse, but there's also something in th- some ways thematically, I think lyrically, it, it just, it worked well. It was like this kind of narrative. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of continuity to it. So I think... And there's Razor Lemon on Sleep Well Beast, though, is there? I mean, in a way, like the, str- the sort of like bright direct, that, you know, my guitar solo on the system right. is like... It, but that's in a way that's more Keith Richards. Razor Lemon's a little more George Harrison, I guess, oh, or something. Oh, so. <laughs> nice! First we're aping Keith Richards. My next favorite we'll be George, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. my favorite Beatle, but also yeah. my favorite George Costanza is a close second. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I it, it's so intriguing uh, to imagine making these songs almost completely, and then you know waiting for this part. The, the vocals that are the vocal melody that's so important but I, I'm curious to what extent you are imagining a, a kind of a vocal melody that's separate from whatever Matt's going to come up with I mean is yeah. that a is that a part of your process that you have an imaginary possibility for a vocal melody I mean I always it's always the case that I'm singing along to what I'm writing like not in any specific grand way where I'm we have lyrics and I'm sending him specifically the idea although sometimes I'll sing whatever I hear just as a departure point for him um but I think over the years of working with Matt I've realized there's certain tricks and just certain ways of working that I know he responds to because he like we write a lot of music and a lot of it he doesn't write to because he just can't doesn't hear something or he doesn't like it or whatever but he tends to respond to certain kinds of like voice leading and close intervals and like slow changing. It doesn't like um, radical chord changes. Usually it's more like these kind of not, not drones, but like there's just subtle shifts in the harmony. It's like, but he works. Um, I think it's better that he like, he comes at it from a, a totally different place. Cause he's not, he doesn't play instruments. 
and a lot of times what he finds it's more it's more interesting than what I would compose or, or sing because I'm kind of caught in the sense of harmony you know like playing the music and sort of understanding what it's doing I might choose something that makes sense to me or is beautiful and like I have I'm excited about it, but like when he's almost like this, it's this raw force or something colliding. Right. And he's a good, and he's, he's become quite musical over the years. So now he does hear things. He'll suggest things with musically and he'll like mess with chord progressions sometimes or he'll just like cut stuff out. And I would imagine just also being out of New York City, out of your, the space you'd been working in here in Brooklyn and in a whole new space that as you say was constructed for the purpose of of this band working there but also just somewhere quiet upstate I mean do do you think that that helps kind of just shift your perspective or open up the parameters on it yeah I mean we so I moved from Brooklyn to upstate New York uh almost three or four years ago I guess three and a half years ago and and I'd lived in Brooklyn since the late 90s, um, since 98, I think. And so it all, the band until very recently. And and so it has been a big shift. Like everyone's, for the first thing is like everyone's spread out around the world. I've been living half the time in Copenhagen and my brother lives in Paris and Matt lives in LA and Brian went back to Ohio and Scott lives in the North Fork of Long Island. So like for us to actually do, be a band and make music together, we needed somewhere to gather and I also have just loved the idea of having a more residential sort of studio. So I bought this old, like this tiny old farmhouse, um, sort of two and a half hours north in, of the city on the Hudson River. Um, that's like from the 18th century. It's like, you know, just, and for the, I lived there for a year before doing this project. And I realized there was an old barn along this pond, this long pond. And we took it down and does basically just, yeah, I, I sort of like indulged myself and like built my dream studio. And that's um, the cover, that's on the cover of the record, is that? Yeah, and it was kind of Matt's idea. I think it, it was important to him because it was such a, I think for him, Long Pond, the studio, you know, it was designed, we kind of like talked a lot about how we wanted it to feel and that, like how we wanted to work there and no control room and being everyone being able to stay there and it was and then and, and it just worked out so well and it's such a you know ever matt will come for he'll come from three or four weeks and literally not leave not even go to a coffee shop or something you know he'll just like and he's wandering around he makes fires at night the and, beard gets longer yeah and he listens to you know you like you see the coyotes like drinking from the pond at nine you know when the sun's going down and you see like wild turkeys and you see bobcats and it's just deer and and, and he's like he kind of grew up on his going to his uncle's farm a lot and actually spent like quite a bit of time out outdoors and um, like western Ohio western Cincinnati and and I think for him it's just it's been really peaceful for him and a great place for him to be and then I guess for our collaboration it's kind of it's just been a nice like mellowing thing of like being out in nature and we make fires and um and it is yeah it's just like a clubhouse for the band um and it's it's really meant that we look forward to getting together as opposed to sort of it being a stressful and anxious time um and and then I don't and it's never like okay Brian do your drum part or Bryce you gotta get that guitar done or whatever it's more like everyone's just plugged in and everyone's and we have a great engineer and we're just basically like well there's no distractions like in Brooklyn where you just you know you're gonna run to the store whatever it might be you're gonna run to the store you're gonna gotta go meet your friend at the bar you'll be back in a couple hours or yeah there's nothing else to do except to just enjoy the Space, yeah, totally. And we kind of, it's like we were. I think we were also rebuilding our friendships a little bit. Not that they, you know, everybody loves each other, but we we kind of at some point became a a, a, a dysfunctional family, you know. And I think um, there, it's been nice. Now we're all like, I'm I'm the youngest. Bryce and I are the youngest, and we're 41, and um, we all have kids and stuff. And it was kind of like it was a nice we were sort of re refocusing on what's important I think and um and a lot of times we have our kids around and it's you know it's just a you know and there's it's a perfect place to just be creative it really is and there's and you can still like we'll still set up and just play incredibly loud also because like we haven't done that in a long time where you can just like close the door and just like 
turn the amps up. We couldn't do that in Brooklyn because of the neighborhood. And, and right. also it was just such a tiny space. And it, years ago, we used to practice in warehouses and in Guanis and in Williamsburg. And like now it's all, I mean, yeah, yeah. Like there, there's nothing, none of that's <laughs> happening anymore. You're going to have to go to Deep Queens to get an affordable, uh, yeah. Yeah. spacious uh, situation. What, uh, since we are, since this is an album release day for you, I'm curious, what was the first piece of music you ever released? Um, you and by like, released, I just mean made enough copies for anyone besides you to hear it. That would definitely have been our high school band with Brian. So Bryson and I and Brian Devendorf, the drummer of the National, we've been in a band together since we were 14, and it was called, that band was called Equinox, and we made a record... <laughs> Yeah, bad name. We had a series of of really bad. I mean, he had actually Brian had a band before that called Flaming Intestines. But Equinox was it was kind of a an, an instrumental band that was definitely inspired to some extent by the Grateful Dead, but in uh, that kind of world. But we we really Scott actually designed our record because he was a graphic design student like his early in college, and he he did the the design for it, and we made like. A thousand copies, and I think like nine hundred and fifty of them are still in my parents' basement in Ohio. But, <laughs> but it's funny because like the first song, first songs that we really wrote were for that band. And at first, it was just Brian and Rice and I, and we used to play at the parties, and like people would tape our shows and stuff. It was really funny. Like there's still a tape called Bert's Barn where everybody was on acid, and we played for like eight hours or something. Um, and we kind of it was good because we got we learned to play. You know, we were kind of and we played. We, we were already been playing since they were like seven years old or something, but I think that's, that is as we go really far back in that sense. Um, right. And Scott and Brian also had a, rec- a band called Pale Face Jimmy that was kind of more, a little bit more punk or something. And they played our high, our middle school dance, I think, Bryce and I's middle school dance. And we thought they were so cool. So then we tried to figure out a way to like invite Dr- Brian to play with us. And first, I guess, then we had a college band called Project Nim. Right. That was also a terrible name. Um, and we made a few records. We made like three records, also self-released, but the, we had like a following and we could like travel around and play for people. And that was our first experience with like actually having people connect with the songs you're writing and like want to hear you play them and stuff. But yeah, The National was the first time that I was like in a band that I actually liked, like I felt confident about or something. It was always a funny thing before that but but when you're playing an equinox at so 14 or whatever and as you say you and bryce have been playing since you were seven i mean let's go back to seven year old yeah aaron like you know because i know you come from a musical family and um i'm assuming that it was just something as a little kid it was a given that you were going to learn to play music it was now it was definitely like not something my parents suggested it was more we grew up in north of Cincinnati, like half an hour, 40 minutes north of Cincinnati. And it was basically just very suburban. We lived pretty far down in the woods and in the basement. And we always shared a room until we were 18. We slept in the same room. And we just basically did everything together. Like if we played, there was never a time that we did anything separate. So we like collected baseball cards together and we, you know, were in the same little school and we played on all the same sports teams. And like music was just another... My dad was a a really talented drummer, jazz drummer, and we found his drum set in the furnace room in storage when we were like six, because the furnace was a super scary room that was was haunted with monsters. (laughs) And so we would like peek in there and be like, oh, what's that? And we saw this thing and like how, and we could see this like dusty drum set. And it turned out it's like a 1959 Blue Sparkle Slingerland drum set that he got for his bar mitzvah when he was 13, my dad. Wow. Um, in Queens. And he had like this amazing, this actually quite famous. Wait, also your dad is from Queens? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Represent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so that we, we saw that drum set and like I, and then he came home from work and we were like, what's that? Like, what is that in there? And he, and he pulled it out. I remember because at some point when he was in his thirties, he quit playing music. Okay. Um, and got a real job to support his family. And, um, he pulled it out and like tuned it up and set it up. And like, then he played and, and he's, he was like very, you know, he's like an old school drummer and had, had amazing training and just very gifted. And he, he like totally blew our minds. And so then I immediately started learning the drums. Um, and took Was that how lessons. you found out that he'd been a drummer? Yeah. We had no idea. So, I mean, and what was his vocation that he'd replaced drumming with? 
um, just like office you know, jobs type. Yeah, thing. like uh, I don't even know what you call it. Like, like a, he was your like anyone else's dad who went to work, and then you peek in the furnace room, and there's a dusty drum kit, and you're like, Dad. Yeah. Yeah, that's we, awesome yeah. did it blow your mind I mean did you start to see him differently after you saw him play drums totally and like it was fun to realize that and then we so I started learning the drums and my brother actually oddly was learning flute at that time I was like it was kind of like I got to play the drums and make a racket and he was learning flute but then one day we took all of our baseball cards and pawned them at a pawn shop for a guitar and a bass and then we brought it home and then we actually got my dad to play with us as we started learning. And would way. you and Bryce just trade off with the guitar, guitar and bass? or I played the bass at first, and he played guitar. And then very quickly, we started both playing guitar. But I always, I am, like, originally a bass player. And I then studied upright bass, and he studied classical guitar. And we kind of went to the, like, we would go to day school, and then we would go to conservatory. And it kind of got more intense right. when we were teenagers. Um, but my dad would, like, come to school at the, like, sometimes he would come to school for the high school um what do you call that like um when the there's like a big address or like everyone's gathered and assembly assembly, high school assembly and he would play like we would set up and play with him like a song and he would do like an insane drum solo and he'd like show up in his suit and people thought it was hilarious Uh, and but it was there's video of it that's actually i gotta find those videos because it's pretty it's pretty amazing like he just comes in and we like kind of play we would play like oh yeah come or something (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he would like do an insane drum solo but um but that's kind of when we started but it was always i think it was never like oh we're going to be musicians it was always like something we did because we liked doing it we have, Bryce and I have this thing where we we sort of feed off each other and we're we're once we like once we had guitars in our hands literally like they wouldn't leave our hands mm. for like 10 years or something you know and then right. we'd be at school like practicing without the guitars and like looking at each other like you know like you know doing riffs and stuff and so then you guys sort of were the ones who put yourselves on a the more ambitious path of getting training as as musicians as opposed to just having it be like you jammed and you figured it out by by playing i mean the idea of like doing conservatory stuff that was something that you guys decided like yeah let's get real good at the shit we had we sort of had both because my sister's three years older and her like she was a total like sort of goth punk like she went through many phases but like she she was dating a lot of or some guys that were in kind of cool Cincinnati bands like Lizard 99 and then she dated this guy Brad who was in this band called Soda and they would come and that was during like already like Brainiac was around and mm. and there was this band Throneberry and like those guys would come around and play with us and they would teach us like Minutemen songs and like you know um, we would play like Firehose songs and and kind of like we were sort of playing that kind of stuff but then we were also still into like our dad's music and the Grateful Dead and like it was that time when the dead were still touring and we were mm-hmm. still like kind of in that sort of way of thinking and, and we wanted we got right, we Jerry got to was, see Jerry was still alive Jerry was still alive and like we got really into like obviously you know as everybody knows the day of the dead like we we, we were big fans and, and he could play and we sort of like we were always intellectually curious and we couldn't understand how he could play like that because he was a, he was like we saw him play with David Grisman and they played like kind of blue and he could like solo in a very credible way over like a jazz standard or something and we were like well how does he and, we, and he played bluegrass music and he and he was you know but then he was like the guitar hero of this rock right. and roll band and we kind of wanted to be able and we were just curious I guess how do you get this sort of like intellectual knowledge that you can also be soulful with or something and yeah. so we started to like learn stuff and like get more into theory and we I mean we were always wouldn't say we were like nerds or something but technically we, minded we were like technically minded or sort of like vertical knowledge minded or right. something and still like we like to and it, that was like we played Celtic music we played klezmer music we played like jazz and we played classical music and this was all when we were kids and then we played rock and roll and we played like you know, Minuteman songs with my sister's boyfriends and stuff. And it was all just like blending into this thing. And then Bryce really took it. Like he, he kind of ran with playing classical guitar and he went to Yale for undergrad where he also did a master's degree at the same time where he was doing classical performance. And then he, that's when he sort of started to become a 
composer and this was long before the national um and i i went i like went to college and i still i didn't study music in college but i played in like the jazz orchestra and sort of um so there was always that but i think what we really loved was always having bands you know um, but it was this combination where like the bands were always like what we did for fun and then like we would also like be more technical or like sort of studying music at the same time and we we listened my dad was we had a lot of jazz record like his vinyl we like kind of had all his records and he had a ton of jazz records and we would go see tons of concerts and um like classical music and and jazz and anyone that came to town with him which was really nice we got to see like the graceland tour and you know just tons of stuff as it came through and it all just was like blending into a a thing for us that when we really started writing songs the influences were coming not just from rock and roll but also from you know more uh instrumental you know jazz and classical and, and sort of and it's still to this day like i think some of what we do in the band we still have like structures which are pop structures but then there's like uh, it's always been that the details and the kind of like harmonic arrangements and stuff have something else going on in them and usually there's a longer like less repetitive part to it as well um which is why the songs always take a while to like people say like why are they like peeling an onion or why do they take a while to get into and it's it's because of that i think because there's like different levels of the composition or something you know is the music that appeals to you the most from other artists stuff that has that i mean is that is your favorite stuff uh stuff like that where it's uh informed by a lot of different things at the same time that it's hard to figure out i mean i'm like i i'm a sucker for like a beautiful song but i or just a simple song but it is i think there's a reason that we I, I sort of like appreciate people's craft and I like when I can hear their craftsmanship and if they're I mean I've always been obviously we're friends with Sufjan Stevens but I also am such a fan of his work because it's obviously he's such a brilliant lyricist and he's a brilliant melodist but then there's also like musically there's always something really going on with it and it push, he's always pushing himself he's always kind of shape-shifting and but I, I you know I love Dylan or somebody like where it's mm-hmm. like if I listen to anybody more it's than more it's direct more direct and it's not really about like musical complexity necessarily so but somehow that has been it's not like we make avant-garde complex rock songs and we you know there's far more adventurous music out there but it's always been important to us to, to like have you know Trouble Will Find Me we were so ex- excited about the odd time signatures of Trouble Will Find Me but then nobody ever asked about them we were like well this first song is in 9-8 isn't that cool and, you know <laughs> but ultimately no one really cares but to us I think as musicians it makes it like there is something about playing those songs that's it kind of keeps you interested it's hard to explain like if this is your job if this is what you're going to do for the rest of your life you might as well like keep yourself interested in it you know you obviously have like a ton of extracurricular things that you do some of which you've mentioned but um what is that an outlet for what is the sort of zone of things that you're looking for as a for a mode of expression for that's outside of what you're doing with the national or what are the sort of remaining urges that you're like i still need something that gets the whatever urge yeah i mean i there's a lot that i feel because people always ask bryce and i like how do you do so many things or something like how do you do all these other things and we're like well what do you what do you do all day or something but i don't mean that in like a arrogant way but more like because it's not that hard to like get up with your rock band at 10 p.m after you've had two beers and play (laughs) and then have two beers and then go to sleep you know what i mean yeah Um, a lot of day remaining (laughs) a lot of day day remaining and i think it's the thing that i'm really excited about right now is and, and have been for many years is sort of is just collaboration in general and sort of mm-hmm. exploring it, it's been amazing to have the opportunity to collaborate with visual artists like Ragnar Kjartansson or Matthew Ritchie or other people that we've come into con- contact with and to create all the like these events like Eau Claire or Haven and Copenhagen um, they're really just meant as opportunities to bring the community together and then try things and sort of like break down barriers between people in general and like I, I feel like I mean I love the national and this is our release day and everything but like sometimes it does feel very confining that you're like in that band and that's what you sound like and this is the songs and it's these five guys whereas musicians the, the times that we've had like in the funk house in Berlin or at Eau Claire in Wisconsin when you just bring people together for a week or however long and there's no 
it's not overly structured or overly hierarchical or overly sort of like branded experience. It's more like, well, let's actually just make some stuff and present it. And it could be anything from like improvised music to new songs to, you know, existing songs that you're rearranging or, or, um, you know, or, you know, installations that are, you know, the first year at Eau Claire, my brother and I and, and Kristen and Kristen Anna and Gita from Moom and Ragnar Kjartansson, we made a song cycle and he like painted a forest scene and we were like lovers, like, you know, in this forest singing these songs. And it was like a total, if I told, if I, if someone came up to me with that idea, I'd be like, I'm never going to do that. I'll be make a total fool of myself. But we did it and we opened the festival with it and like, it was, it was, it, I learned from it and I feel like, yes, it was slightly humiliating. Like I was seeing Matt like laughing at us out in the audience. But like, it was, <laughs> What did you learn from it? It was just, a, it was a great experience to just say, sort of say, yeah, we're going to write this thing and we're going to go, you know, yes, the national is going to play it later but we're gonna get up and do this thing you know at noon or whatever and like this year at Eau Claire Justin and I did that where we um you know we're working we're actually working on a bunch of things together right now songs and we just got up and they're totally unfinished and we just got up and played them you know and sound checked in front of people and just you know kind of present works in progress and you learn from that and it's kind of so the more I can do that kind of thing and also give other people the opportunity to sort of collaborate with people they might not be able to reach normally and sort of I feel like music needs to have more of this kind of like sustainable localized communities where it's like people helping each other people helping each other finish things people giving each other raw material um getting away from like you know this over polished over marketed branded thing and I'm saying that on the day that our you know very branded record comes out but like I and I believe that like our record would not be as good as I think it is if we hadn't collaborated so openly Mm -hmm. there's so many people that have fed into it and we've been doing that for years so I guess to answer your question like for me it's just I would love to keep writing a lot of music both in the national but also outside and um to have the opportunity to maybe you know make songs like what you know making songs with Justin or making songs with you know, like I got to, I've gotten to produce, you know, I'm using quotes, quote unquote, produce records. But to me, it's not really, I don't really believe so much in that word produce. To me, it's more just like collaboration. And I'm learning as much from whoever I'm recording or working with as they might gain from working with me. Um, and that's a way to grow. So, and in a way, like I kind of would love to move away from that word in general and just have it be more about like making stuff, you know. Yeah, it's more about like, you know, because you like now if I if I don't make any music, new music for the next 18 months or whatever, because the Nationals on tour with Sleep Well Beast, I will atrophy in some way creatively. Mm -hmm. And this has happened before to us, like we're like Alligator and Boxer. We were just touring like Mad Men and we wouldn't have the opportunity really to like be developing ideas. And then we would get home and like crash and burn and then kind of like... And then you're not sure if you remember how to do this anymore. Yeah. um, And it kind (laughs) of becomes, you burn out a little bit. And I think, um, I I don't know, I love the idea of like, even if we are doing national shows, I would love to like go out in the lobby and play the guitar or like invite some friends to like work on something. Like we're going to, we have a mobile studio finally that we're going to have backstage. Oh, nice. The kind of thing you're talking about also is a reminder of balancing the emphasis between having the joy you take from doing it be purely about the audience's reaction that drug of approval from an audience and having it be more about again the process the 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 feeling of playing with each other without with or without anyone there to react to it yeah for sure i mean i think it's it is a drug of like the adulation or that kind of energy for us we have this amazing connection with the audience because like a lot of these songs the emotional thing about the songs like they there's a there is a communal catharsis that happens at our shows, which is beautiful and you feel it. Um, but then if you can mix that up with like other, other things that are happening somehow. And I think that's the idea we did it. We've, we've started to do this. And I think the more that we can create that kind of um, opportunity, whether it's like playing in venues where there can be other performances that happen earlier mm. or playing in venues where, it's easier to have collaborators join us and stuff and like changing the kind of the framework for it. So we're, I think we're all thinking about that, but, um, but I think for now it's like we made this record, 
it's really fun to play and we're also kind of we realize we don't have hit songs so like we can kind of play any songs from our past so i mean it used to be that we thought we had to play a certain you know you play your new record or some of it and then you maybe people want to hear like blood buzz or whatever (laughs) and um now i think we kind of really want to play all kinds of stuff like actually tonight i'll just tell you because we're not allowed to do it but like we wanted to play all of sleep well beast and then maybe there might be a few guests there and and maybe they could play some songs but then then we were going to play all of boxer front to back and everybody was into it like matt normally would be like i'm not doing that but now he's just like yeah that sounds like a great idea but But we don't have time we don't have time time. and then we were like well wouldn't it be awesome but so but that kind of thing it would just be fun you know just to be more like that's what we're going to do tonight and then tomorrow we're going to do something totally different well it must be one of the you know one of the nice parts of being the biggest this band has ever been is that you can in a way look forward and plan things that are purely based on ideas like this as opposed to just having to be shoehorned into a slot that every other band fills when they come into town and and it is interesting how much nowadays you know i fucking love the fact that you know uh artists like the national and and lcd sound system and arcade fire and stuff are are you know among the the biggest you know modern rock bands in in all of the land and so it's like okay well it's not just you know having to do things the way that you too does it when they come into town right yeah no i think it is we're we're it's 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 unusual to be in this situation where because like i wouldn't have predicted that we would get to this level i mean any level that we've gotten to above like i think when we got to bowery we were like whoa this is crazy (laughs) and that was like it was like 10 years ago that we played that week-long residency there when boxer came out and um and and it just keeps getting bigger i guess and it's like we have these ugly duckling songs and we're like how does this how does this work i mean i'm i maybe i'm too critical or something. I, I I love ugly ducklings, by the way. But. Was there a point when it things shifted from you guys having the attitude of not really expecting anything and being like, eh, it's fine if no one likes it, if everyone likes it, to being willing to embrace the push toward even bigger, to being willing to do things that feel like you're asking for more? Um, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, there. I mean, I think like when after Boxer and when we made High Violet there was that was when we were really in the mode of like we're just gonna keep our head down and like we knew that we had to play great shows to earn the fans that ultimately we were never having there was never much media support or like other than someone like you like much radio support in a mainstream way now like there's more but it was it used to be that we didn't benefit from that so like if we were gonna get bigger and kind of earn that right it was purely based on like the songs and word of mouth and like playing good shows and and we surrounded we we built like a team around ourselves especially with video and lighting and sound that was capable of like presenting this the big, national yeah, in a bigger show, yeah. way and we learned a lot from rem and from we learned a lot from arcade fire and rem because we opened for those bands like we opened the last rem tour mm. in the states and got really close to those guys and and had crazy experiences with them and just learning from them and and kind of seeing how they did it and then arcade fire is a totally different thing than us but like seeing them because we you know we are open for them as early as like 2005 and 6 i think and you know there was a thing we were doing we were just we were growing and we were growing into these bigger venues and then we and we learned how to do it we would play eventually we played arenas and we played you know the biggest venues in the towns we were going to and we pulled it off but i think now like that we made a conscious choice with this record to start mostly in theaters and to do multiple nights because we like the feeling of of, and we like the intimacy of it but then we also enjoy the spectacle of like yeah it would be fun to play madison square garden and like make it special um and i've seen amazing concerts there you know i saw bob dylan like um, so yeah, it's kind of a mixture of like wanting to sort of just we don't want to be we're never going to be U two and we don't want to be U two and I don't want we don't nobody wants to play that bigger bigger game really but occasionally it's fun like when we played the O two arena in London at the end of Trouble Find Me it was a great show you know and I think everybody that that was there nobody felt like this is too big it felt like a celebration of 
that era or something. Um, so it's, it feels appropriate more like at the end of a cycle as like a big party right. as opposed to now. Um, um, well, thank you so much. I think that's all I've got for you, but I really appreciate you being down to do this podcast thing in, in, in these early episodes. And I would love to come back and talk about a whole bunch of other things. Sometime. Thank you. Thank you so much. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. fascinating dude and a guy whose attitude toward collaborating as being an enterprise that should be free of ego I really appreciate that and um, you know I love that he's making more and more opportunities in the world for artists to do just that thanks again Aaron for taking the time for LSQ Uh, and coming up next we'll listen to some of an interview I did back in the day well back in the day 2003 uh, with Missy Elliott I actually asked you guys on Twitter to help me choose what to include this month from the archives, so thanks to those who voted. And if you're new to the LSQ podcast, the idea here is that I've been interviewing artists since the 90s, and I've got a lot of interesting stuff in my archive, and I'll be playing a little bit of it in each and every episode. So for the interview that includes this excerpt you're about to hear, I met up with Missy Elliott here in New York in fall of 2003 to interview her for Rolling Stone. She was to be featured on the cover of the magazine, along with Eve and Alicia Keys, for a special issue devoted to women in music. Um, And I'll actually post a photo of that cover and of the entire Q&A over on Instagram. You can find me there, at JennyLSQ. It's worth noting that in 2003, Missy Elliott had become one of the most in-demand producers in music and had already worked with heroes of hers like Janet Jackson and Madonna. And so that's where our conversation began. I asked her what had been the most surreal moment so far. to pretty much say to myself, like, man, Madonna was somebody that I watched on TV and swapping down well, I put on all them belts and those gloves and started singing like a virgin in my room. You couldn't tell me I wasn't the black Madonna. It was like, that's how I was going down. And then, you know, Janet from Pleasure Principle to Rhythm Nation, it was like, I went through a Janet Jackson period. I went through a Michael Jackson period. I went through singing all of Whitney, saving all my love for you and everything else, and trying to hit notes like Mariah. So it was like, to get those phone calls, I never got adjusted and just felt like, okay, oh, Mariah called me today, or oh, Whitney called me. It was always, for each one of them, like, wow. So it's no one set thing, because constantly things happen, and I'm just... Still in groupie mode. When when someone that established calls and wants to talk to you about, you know, presumably about working on a song or something, is that the kind of thing you prefer to working maybe with a new artist? I mean, or is like when there's someone who everybody has such a definite opinion of like who Michael Jackson is or who Whitney is or whatever, you have to come in and do your thing and keep true to who they are, keep true to who you are, and like try and do something different with mm-hmm. them. You know the the, the Good thing about each of the artists that I've worked with, I think they pretty much let me do my thing. It was like I knew it, it, it would be a limit, but it wasn't really like a limit like that. It was just let's do a record, it's hot, and they did it. It, it never felt like, okay, uh, you know, this is Mariah, so I don't want to give her, like, this hip-hop track because she's used to this right. big ballad. It was like, whatever I gave them, I would have gave myself. Right. And so I felt like I, they allowed me to still be me because I didn't have to come out and give them a huge ballad. Or I didn't have to come out and give Janet an escapade record. Right. The records that we done together were records that I, I would have sung myself. Right. Have there, uh, have there been people over the years who've wanted to, who you've turned down for whatever reason? Nah. 
you know, because I'm 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 good at I, I got the gift to gab. I'm I'm good at uh, you know, making somebody believe this is what's hot. Like, look, even if they wasn't to get it, it's like by the time I'm done, they they'd still be saying my like. I don't know, but Missy says it's hot, so let's see. Like, so for the most part of it, I just think that's that's what make them believe in what I do because I'm confident about it. Like, I'm telling you, this is what music is missing. Like, when I was in a um, session with Janet, I was like, look, we just sat down and started talking about music, and I was like, I'm going to do a record like this because this is what music needs right now. Like, Everything is so whatever. Like we need that back when the the kick was just hitting back to back. It, it was you know just one beat that yeah. constantly the drive was this. And when I listen to those old records, like old disco records, that was like the drive. And I said that's where we're gonna have to go because we go anywhere else, we gonna lose them. What's the best advice you ever got? Mary J. Blige has get, given me uh, a lot of advice, you know, um, you know, don't change what I do. Do me, but don't ever come out of that because people, you got to remember, people love you for who you are. And if everybody else go and change to something else, you don't have to change that way because people love people. You have become Missy Elliott because people love what you was doing, you know. Being kind to people too, because it's so easy to get at a certain status, and we have so much power at that status that uh, you got fans out there that that uh, love you. You got people that may work on the set of your video shoot that's just excited to be there because they love you. Um, so you try to be kind to people. And, and you try to be kind of people anyway, because that should just be instilled within you, but you be kind of people too, because you never know when you're going to need somebody, you know. And that's pretty much the things I, I learned. This year, Missy celebrated the 20th anniversary of her debut album, Super Fly. She put out a deluxe reissue of it that you can order some sweet vinyl versions of over at missy-elliot.com. And we also expect sometime soon, I guess, a new album from Missy, a seventh studio album that will be her first new LP since 2005. So keep checking her website to stay in the loop. Oh, and a reminder that this sweet little theme song that you're hearing, there you go. Um, is the work of Greta Morgan, who performs as Springtime Carnivore. I encourage you to check out her other stuff when you've got time. Thanks again to Aaron Dessner of The National for sitting with me for episode two of LSQ. I'm sure The National are going to be on the road extensively in 2018. Their website is AmericanMary.com. If you didn't listen to episode one, it includes an interview with Amelia Meath of Sylvanesso, and from the archives, a little bit of a conversation with Beyonce back when she was just 19 years old, but already knew exactly what was going to happen. Each month you'll hear something from the archives. I'm thinking about including some of an interview with Scott Weiland in the upcoming next episode. Oh yeah, and the big news there is that episode three will feature a lengthy interview with Spoon frontman Britt Daniel. So look for that to go online in early January. And if you haven't yet subscribed to LSQ, I hope you'll do that. Um, leave some feedback if you'd like. You can reach me on Twitter at JennyLSQ. I'll talk to you next time.